uh, as I've been mentioning, we've, we've started this new Sunday school curriculum where all the ages, we have three classes now, a preschool class, a, uh, a younger elementary, and an older elementary, and all of them are studying the same text the same week. And we're using this, uh, this curriculum called the Gospel Project, and um, the plan, my plan is to buy one of these leader's guides for each of the parents so that you know what the kids are studying and you can go through that at home, but also to serve a bigger purpose, and that is this curriculum follows redemptive history, the story of God rescuing his people from the beginning, Genesis, but really intensely starting with the calling of Abraham and his working through that one family to bring salvation to the whole world. And I think many of us don't understand that flow of history. We know different biblical stories, and we can tell you those stories, but how do they fit in that whole plan of redemption that culminates in the coming of Christ and his salvation? So the kids are following this. The curriculum takes you through that in three years and then restarts. And you can take the kids through this, your own kids through this, go through it yourself, so that you learn redemptive history as well and are reminded of that. So that's the plan with those, uh, those, that curriculum. We still need some uh, teachers. If you'd like to uh, try out teaching, you don't have to commit for a long time, but uh, let me know if you'd like to uh, join in that, and we can even mentor you in it and teach for a while while you uh, watch what we do. So that's, that's that. Now, uh, if you have your Bible... Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we will pick up our study here of, of the Gospel of Mark with the, uh, the story of Jesus healing a man who is paralyzed, can't walk, maybe one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. I'm sure most of you have heard it, understand a fair bit of, of it. But it's, uh, it's worth looking at again here. comes at an important point in, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has been presenting us with the person of Jesus and how different people respond to Jesus and what Jesus says about himself, particularly in the context of interacting with those he's healing and with those who are seeing him heal and their response. Remember, he was cast out last week after healing a leper, and he couldn't enter the cities. Well, somehow, he's able to return back to his, his home base, his hometown, the seaside village of Capernaum. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. 
who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word given for us. Will you pray with me? Our Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Because we know that when they are pleasing in your sight, they are good for us. They bring us joy. They bring us peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see. Hey, girls. Girls. I want you guys to go back toward the back there. Sorry, I can't, I can't focus as much when you guys are there. <laughs> I can focus through a lot, but I can't focus through that. And I imagine that some of you have trouble too. We've come to a transition point in the Gospel of Mark. Have you noticed that as we have studied these stories of the baptism of Jesus and then Jesus calling his disciples and then Jesus healing a man with the unclean spirit and teaching in the synagogue, a theme has been recurring throughout all of this and that is, that is Jesus' authority. And Jesus taught as one who had authority. When he spoke, the demons listened to him and didn't just listen to him. They acknowledged who he was, the son of God, and they obeyed him. Even last week when we looked at Jesus healing this man with leprosy, an outcast, Jesus declares more than him being healed. He declares that he is clean and only the priests could declare that or God himself. And now we find Jesus declaring something even greater, and he's declaring that this man who is paralyzed, who came not to have his sins forgiven, but who came to be able to walk again, receives something far greater. He receives forgiveness of his sins. And it causes such a stir because the scribes in the room immediately recognized the significance of Jesus' statement. Can you imagine yourself going to the doctor for a second? You go to the doctor because you broke your leg and you can't walk and you're on crutches and you go in and he takes the x-ray and he sees that it's broken and then instead of putting the cast on you, he declares to you, he says to you, your sins are forgiven. And what's your immediate response to that statement? You say, the doctor, I didn't ask you to forgive my sins. <laughs> How can you say that? I mean, what sins are you talking about? I didn't sin against you, doctor. 
Are you saying that part of my sins are forgiven? Some of what I've done, are you saying everything is forgiven? It sounds like you're saying everything is forgiven because you've just said not your particular sins, not called out certain things. You've said your, your sins are forgiven. And you question the doctor rightly and you say you can't say that. I mean, you can forgive me if I've done you wrong, if I don't pay my bill. But you can't declare all of my sins forgiven. And what does Jesus say? He says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. Let me show you by doing something that no one else, none of the doctors of the day, none of the doctors of our day, by the way, can do. It's not like this man just came in in a wheelchair and like many so-called faith healers in our day, kind of gradually got up and took a few steps. No, this man stood up and he walked out the door on his full strength of his leg, and everybody knew that this was not something that any, anyone but God could do. And if this man was declaring something... In God's power, because Jesus' disciples, his apostles, went out and they had power to heal, then you have to question was his action accompanied by truth telling? Was he telling the truth? And the only way this type of healing occurred and has ever occurred throughout history is when is when it's accompanied by truth telling. Jesus' disciples. Now listen, I've not been in ministry a long time, but I've been around long enough to see people who speak of miraculous healings. And some of the time people are healed fairly miraculously. But I'll tell you, when you peel back the layers on those, there's always more to the story. There's always a time that occurs from the time of the sickness to the healing. And it's outside of the norms of medicine, but it's not the same as what Jesus does right here. And so the things that kind of capture our attention most about this story, the fact that this man couldn't find a way into the house, and so his friends went up onto the roof and started digging a hole through the the thatched and pitched roof That's most startling to us, fall away a secondary to the most startling thing that Jesus does, and that is to declare his sins forgiven. Now, just a word of historical context. In Jesus' day, in the village of Capernaum, the houses were oftentimes built with stone on the sides, but they still had to have something to make a roof, and it was generally a flat roof made of tree trunks and then thatched material put on top of it with some type of sealant, some type of bitumen or some type of uh, something to hold it all together. And so for these men to come and to start peeling away that roof, you would have expected it to generate a little bit of anger on Jesus's part or perhaps Peter's part because maybe he was staying in Peter's home. Maybe he had his own home temporarily there in Capernaum. It's not quite clear. But Jesus doesn't draw one bit of attention to this dramatic scene of peeling through the roof. 
Jesus directs the whole attention to his declaration that this man's sins are forgiven. And then furthermore, he directs the attention to his own authority when he says, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, rise, take up your bed, and walk. It couldn't be any clearer than that. And this is really the pinnacle of a presentation of Jesus' authority that has been building up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is very clear about two things in particular. Mark wants us to see first who Jesus is. His authority. That people respond to him immediately when he says, Come and follow me. John and James and Peter and Andrew, fishermen, come and follow him. And even in the passage we'll look at next week, Matthew, called Levi at the time, a tax collector, a sinner, leaves his tax booth, leaves his previous way of life and follows him. That Jesus speaks and the demons respond. That Jesus speaks and people are healed. That Jesus speaks and people are declared clean of their sins. Clean of the things that made them unclean before. Jesus speaks and people come to him. But there's a second thing that Mark wants to see. And that is that when Jesus speaks, not everyone comes. You notice this in the gospel? When Jesus speaks, not everyone comes. And so while Mark is concerned that we see and understand who Jesus is first, Mark's secondary concern is that we understand the type of disciples Jesus is calling us to be. And all through his gospel, Mark is making these delineating statements through stories of essentially three responses to Jesus' to, to Jesus's teaching, to Jesus' call. The first response is, of course, the response of the scribes and the Pharisees, these leaders, these culturally influential people who knew the word of God. And what is their response? It's open hostility to the gospel. It's open hostility to the claims that Jesus is making. It's demonstrated today most clearly in their response to Jesus' declaration that your sins are forgiven. They, They say, what is this man? Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He is speaking lies about who he is and who God is and who God has called him to be. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It is ironic, but still there are those today, just as there were then, who are openly hostile to the gospel. There's a growing wave, a movement in our culture today, whereas atheists in the past were content to not believe in God themselves and be quiet about it. Now there is a movement called the New Atheism, which is evangelistic in its approach. They aren't content to to not believe themselves. They want to convince everybody else 
that this is not truth. The scribes were the new atheists of the day. Their goal was to convince other people that Jesus was telling a lie. They gathered around Jesus not to hear whether his teaching was truth or lie, but to discredit him. In fact, did you notice that as they gathered here in his house, this was not a big house, by the way. As they gathered together in the house, they were physically doing what they were metaphorically trying to do, and that was to trap Jesus, to keep him contained, to cast him away from any kind of position of influence. It said Jesus couldn't get outside of his house, and so what does Jesus do? He teaches. More than that, they were preventing others from coming to Jesus who needed to hear what Jesus was saying. Listen, some of the time in the churches, perhaps there are some of you today even in this church who have been in this place or or are in this place now of active rebellion, rebellion and even more than that of misleading others intentionally so that they cannot get to Jesus. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't send them away. He teaches them. He invites them in, and in fact, some of those same Pharisees, some of those scribes we find in the book of Acts after Jesus dies, and was raised and ascended into heaven, they eventually come to believe. If you're in this place, hear these words of Jesus and consider them carefully. And know that you are welcome in this place to hear the teaching of Jesus because he may be calling you to believe. The second group of people that Mark highlights are Jesus' disciples. And right away they come to the forefront. We saw where John and James, the brothers, and Peter and Andrew, other brothers, hear Jesus say, come follow me, and they leave their nets, they leave their jobs, and they follow Jesus. Matthew, likewise, follows Jesus, and they wrestle and stumble through the teaching that Jesus is teaching. And it's tough at times, but they prove that they are moldable. They are shapeable. They are willing to listen to Jesus, and even when he breaks the paradigms, the worldview, their life philosophies that they've grown up with, they don't reject Jesus at that point. They ask him clarifying questions. They respond to him. And the disciples in Mark are more than just the 12 that Jesus calls apostles. The disciples include many women who come and follow Jesus as well, Mary and Martha. Even it appears that Jesus' own mother, Mary, responds to his teaching though it seems that his brothers, for a time, question and doubt. 
Still, there are other people who are called and we see them come in and Jesus sends out not 12, but 72 people to go and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. These are people who are following Jesus and listening to his instructions. But there's a third group. There's a third group that are probably the most troubling to hear about and also the most uncomfortable to hear about in our own in our own lives because they oftentimes are closer to the truth for us. And this third group are the are the crowds. The people who gather around who aren't hostile to Jesus, they come because they've heard that Jesus is teaching with authority and because they hear that that Jesus is healing people. They like what they see. But their lives aren't changed. They might come to Jesus for healing, but they aren't willing to rip away the roof to get into him. They aren't willing to change the way that they live their life, the way they invest their time, the way they spend their money, the way they care for others, the way they serve others instead of desiring to be served. And it is in these differences that Mark is delineating most clearly the difference between a disciple and one who just hears the teaching and walks away unchanged. Mark is very concerned about this. And rightly so. One pastor, teacher, has described Mark's teaching on discipleship, which is one of his primary focuses in three characteristics. Three qualities that disciples of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, have. And we're going to use this as something of a model or a paradigm or a structure for us to understand not just what Jesus is calling us to be, but how Jesus models these traits himself first before he asks his followers to do the same. Here's the list of eight traits. The first one is following. Following Jesus. Now listen, many people followed him out in the wilderness. Many people followed him to where he went to to hear his teaching. But following means something more in the Gospel of Mark. Following means surrendering our own will to his and committing ourselves to obedience, complete obedience to what he says. The second one is believing Believing his words to be true. Now, believing is more than an intellectual assent to who Jesus is. We've talked about this previously, that even the demons, they believe that Jesus was the Holy One of God. But they still rebel against his leadership. Believing is demonstrated by active faithfulness, the Writer James talks about, show me your faith apart from your works. It can't be done. See, because true belief is always accompanied by 
action. Trust is not saying the words. Trust is taking the steps. The third quality of Jesus' disciples is that they pray. Jesus demonstrated this already when he withdrew from the people and went to pray, knowing of his dependence on God, knowing of the importance of that relational activity, specific words, audible words spoken to God, listening to his response in his word. The fourth is a careful watching over our heart, seeking purification. John Owen's words, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Actively seeking out the sin in our life and putting it to death. And even though we continue to sin over and over, we continue to confess it to God and desire to put it away from our life because we know of its catastrophic consequences in our life. Fifth quality of a disciple is serving others humbly. Not considering ourselves more worthy or more capable than others. More important than others, as Paul says in the book of Philippians. But considering the needs of others more important than our own. Because Jesus came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Sixth is withstanding temptation and persevering through persecution. Standing up to the evil one in his lies. Seventh is confessing our faith to others. Proclaiming the reason that we have this hope. If we never tell others of this hope, have we truly actually been healed ourselves? If you knew the doctor who could heal that broken leg just by saying the word, would you not tell others about it? This is an important criteria because if you don't tell others about your faith, the question stands, do you really believe that Jesus has healed you of your sins? And I know that many of us stand in places of pain and ostracization. We've had broken relationships when we've tried to do that in the past, and it takes practice. It takes wisdom to know what to say and what not to say, to not be unnecessarily offensive, but to realize that the gospel message says you can't fix it yourself, and that's offensive to our culture today. It was offensive to their culture in Jesus' time. But the eighth criteria is really the criteria of this story, and that is the criteria of forgiving others. Do you notice in the creed earlier today, one of the lines, there's not a lot in there. Those words were chosen very specifically. One of the words at the end of this was, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is central to God's plan of redemption. And it's fulfilled in Jesus' death to bring atonement for sins, which brings true forgiveness. 
Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, chooses his words carefully, a very brief prayer. And yet, what does he say? He doesn't just say, forgive us our sins. He says, may we forgive others. God, you have forgiven us. Now, I hesitate there for a second because it's troubling the way Jesus phrases that, and it's echoed in the Gospel of Mark as well in chapter 11, in verse 25, where he's teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that you, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's almost as if our forgiving others is the condition on which God will forgive us. And that sounds so opposite to what we want to be true because we've been forgiven so much, then we forgive. And both are true at the same time. And yet Jesus presses this point that if you are a true disciple of mine, what will be characteristic in your life is that you forgive others. Now this raises the important question, what is true forgiveness? Forgiveness is an important part of our culture. Forgiveness is what breaks cycles of violence. If there was no forgiveness, retributive justice would continue to spiral out of control to the point where there would be no one left. Forgiveness breaks this inevitable cycle of violence By entering into it, bringing healing. Forgiveness also allows our ethical standards to exceed our human capability. Forgiveness allows our ethical standards to exceed our human ability. And Jesus said, God forgive them, for they know not what they do. Raises the question, does God justify ignorance? Or does ignorance nullify culpability? And in the cross, in Jesus' death for sins, in atoning sacrifice, we find that sin is not written off. Sin is paid for. One of the most disturbing scenes I've seen in a movie recently was in a a beautiful tale of Cinderella that recently came out. You've seen this, the Disney remake, not cartoon, but, uh, but actual actors. Beautiful tale of honesty, of dependability, of, of trustworthiness, of redemption, of a rescuing of this young woman out of horrendous conditions. 
Her stepmother keeps her hidden away and won't let her out even when she finds out that she is the one that the prince loves. And then at the end, of course, you know the story. You all know the story. The prince does find Cinderella and rescues her. But there's a scene in this new movie that is so disturbing as she comes out of hiding and she's rescued and the prince is taking away her away and she says to her wicked stepmother these simple words, I forgive you. And I'll tell you why it's so disturbing. It's because you don't know what she really means or what it will look like because it seems like she is just going to walk out of that house never to see her stepmother again. Everything about this whole scene makes you believe that. That what she's doing is putting the burden back on them and using forgiveness as a weapon against them. I forgive you. Take that. Now I'm out of here. And you'll never see me again. Now, like all fairy tales, the story ends right there and you don't see how it plays out. I hate that. (laughs) Because I'd love to believe that she would come back and she would restore that relationship somehow and that her stepmother and her evil stepsisters would respond to her grace and that she would demonstrate true love. Because true forgiveness always comes at a price. True forgiveness is absorbing the wrong that was done to you so that relationships can be restored. True forgiveness is paying the debt that somebody else can't pay. True forgiveness is demonstrated in Jesus. You realize that Jesus didn't leave the bad situation and escape to the palace. Jesus left the palace and came to the bad situation to bring healing to us. Jesus was the one being wronged, but he came in to rescue the ones who were wronging him. Jesus brought a different type of forgiveness that allows us to keep these standards high. So that we don't sink into a a morality of relativity. There's a great danger in that morality. I saw in the news just this week where a man in Italy, homeless man, stole something and the judge found him not guilty because of his need. I hope at first the need of the man captures your heart and you say, that man did have a legitimate need. Why? Why should he be found guilty? The punishment facing that man, according to the law, was six months in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. The need for appropriate justice is there. The need for punishments that fit the crime, of course, are there. 
But if we take forgiveness out of the equation where somebody else pays the debt of another, we end up in a society that has no rules. What should have happened there? Person pays for the bread. I saw another story. I think this one was fictional. Where a man was caught stealing, or a child actually was caught stealing, and they, and they were about to hand him over to the authorities, and someone else comes in and asks the child, is he, is he homeless? Or rather, is your mom sick? And the boy answers yes. And this other shopkeeper pays not just what the child owed for his stealing, but the penalty for it, some multiple times over. The forgiveness of the gospel doesn't lower the requirements of God's law, of his goodness. The forgiveness of the gospel comes in and pays a debt that we can't pay ourselves. It comes in and rescues the homeless, rescues the downtrodden, rescues the poor, rescues each of us, and enables us to be people who forgive others when they don't deserve it. To be true disciples of Jesus. Mark presents Jesus in his forgiving before he ever calls us to forgive. Because we need to know that we are forgiven so that we can forgive others. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come from that palace and rescued us at great cost to himself. He was even willing to submit himself to death itself because that was the penalty for sin. And it should change everything about how we order our lives. That's the call of Mark. Good place to close. Continue next week. I know I said last week we'd answer the question about the leper next week. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, it is difficult to forgive others. We want justice. And justice is good. Help us to remember we also want mercy because we need mercy. And to be the type of people who show mercy because we've received mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you have the authority to declare our sins forgiven. And help us to live in that light today and forever. We ask in your name, amen.